Look around the room and I see a family that I love. Joyful to be with you today. Worship the King. Study his holy word. Enjoy this wonderful time together. For this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We look forward to this time together. Many of you are preparing to serve second hour. Uh, maybe have other plans this afternoon. Opportunities to be a light of the gospel. Um, to worship him, to know him, enjoy him in all that we are and all that we do. And I pray just as a result of our time all the more rightly that there would be a hunger for refining, for maturing, that we would make war with the flesh that would maybe say, oh, I know this. But as we go to the Word, as we go to these truths, there'd be layers of it that we would climb into that maybe we know in our minds, but we're yet to really live them out. We're yet to really let them just break us and send us and move us for His glory and purposes. And so I've been praying for you, for us together in this time. Will you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Ephesians? We continue in chapter 2 today. As I promised last week, we would pick up where we left off in the end of verse 5. Six words we'll focus on today as we continue our rich study of this great letter that God has entrusted us in His Holy Word. I want to read verse 4 and 5 together. For a little bit of context and remind us what we what we studied last week and where this phrase that we'll study today sits within the text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Last week we saw that we are only saved in Christ. In order to be saved, we need all of His righteousness, and we bring none of our own. We are made alive in Christ alone. This is what we call salvation in Christ alone. In the next few weeks, as I preach through the coming verses, we will see that according to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Today we will slow to focus on these six words in the second part of verse 5 and the amazing fact that we are saved by grace alone. Paul says this with great clarity. By grace you have been saved. Church, these words we find in this portion of the early part of chapter 2 are sweet. They are precious to us and our faith. There are scriptures throughout 
the Bible that we hold dear and high and speak of often, and these surely are at the top of that list. So I come humbly to them. And it's my hope that for many of you, there would not be very many new things you would hear this morning. Because we are efforting to speak of these truths often. But as I've already asked you to lean in with me, let's look to God to convict, embolden, send, motivate, clarify what He has done to save His elect by grace alone. The Bible teaches us that salvation is entirely of grace. Before I get into the layers of biblical saving grace, let us consider the ways that fallen man or false teachings have approached this topic of God's saving grace because they are very prevalent. They're very active all around. And in many of us, we're what we believed or thought for a long time because of our reasoning or because of maybe some of the ways we were taught growing up Some of the systems of belief maybe we're a part of. One of those very loud systems of belief is the Roman Catholic system of belief. A very famous and respected Catholic theologian, Ludwig Ock, spoke these words. The Council of Trent teaches us that for the justified, eternal life is both a gift or grace promised by God and a reward for his own good works and merits. This unbiblical view is grounded in the idea that God saves by grace, but also that mankind is rewarded for good works that we perform. A more popular layman's way of saying these things that maybe you've heard over the years is God will not deny His grace to those who do what they can. Maybe today's pithy version of this is God helps those who help themselves. There have been some sad and sobering statistics that have come out over the years whereby many self-professing evangelicals think that that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a direct biblical quote. Or an alarming majority thought at least was in relationship to a a biblical idea. In contrast, in an effort to ratify these terrible and defaming ideas of God's glorious and amazing grace, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals wrote this clarifying statement in 1996, saying this, Unwarranted confidence... In human ability is a product of fallen human nature. This false confidence now fills the evangelical world from the self esteem gospel to the health and wealth gospel, from those who have transformed the gospel into a product to be sold and sinners into consumers who want to buy. The struggle is that grace alone does not make much sense to a modern American who doesn't think that there's very much wrong with the human condition in the first place. 
and that a quote-unquote good God should reward mankind's best efforts to do as much good as they can in this life. This is the reason that we must submit ourselves to sola scriptura, to scripture alone, to instruct us about these things. God's word is the only place where we are told that we are saved by the unprovoked, undeserved, saving grace of God alone. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5, let me read it again. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, because of His love, because of His will, it doesn't say because we did enough to kind of fall off the fence on the good side. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, transgressors are trespassers to the point of spiritual deadness. No spiritual life. Nothing spiritually good. In that state, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We must get grace right if we are going to get the gospel of our Lord right. We must understand what true grace is and what it isn't in order to combat the ideals of our fallen flesh, to properly testify the gospel of our Lord to the lost, and to most importantly help us fall on our faces in utter gratitude before the Holy God for His amazing saving grace. To do this, we need to start by defining grace. Because we need to not move very far from its definition to really understand what is so amazing about grace. Definition of grace. Grace is unmerited favor or an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. The Word of Truth Catechism tells us that saving grace is God's love, forgiveness, and redemption freely and effectively given in Jesus to the elect who are undeserving of this. First and foremost, we see that God's saving grace is a gift. It is a gift from God, and only a gift God can give. So we must understand something very critical here. For saving grace to truly be grace, two things must be true of it. Its recipients must not be deserving to be saved. Or it's not grace. Not deserving in any way. Number two, its giver must not be obligated to save. Or it's not grace. God is not obligated to give His saving grace. His obligation, do our sin, according to Scripture, is justice, judgment, wrath. That's the right, that's the holy response. His justice must happen. Proper judgment of our condition must happen. 
wrath must be given to the guilty. And fallen mankind is not deserving to receive God's saving grace. What we deserve is God's judgment because of our sin. God's wrath because of our sin. The Bible does not approach the subject of grace from a perspective that everyone is entitled to a chance at heaven, as many modern Americans do. We make the holiness of God small, we make the goodness of man big, and we rationalize this thought process that there should be a chance given, an opportunity. Democracy makes for a wonderful system of government. God, however, does not operate according to American democratic ideals. And he does not owe his creation any favor in order for him to be good or just. That is a narrative or a definition we put on him in our fallenness. But today, large numbers of evangelicals undermine and effectively destroy, cut the legs out from underneath the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, which Paul is so clear to speak in our scripture today. And they do this by supposing that human beings are basically good, capable of making good choices apart from God's gracious intervention. What everyone here must understand is as soon as we introduce a man-made doctrine of fairness, we introduce a standard of self-defined right by which God has to save all or at least give everyone an equal chance to be saved. We introduce that. The Scripture does not do that. This is simply, and what I want you to understand, fundamentally not grace. It's something else. It's not something God is bound by according to Holy Scripture. If there is any standard outside of God that He must meet, understand this, then He ceases to be God. What we must understand is that the only thing that is fair is proper judgment and righteous condemnation for our sin. And I fear that far too many Christians don't really understand God's grace and, and are guilty of speaking grace and saying grace and sing of grace and it's all grace and it's by grace, but they really don't get what grace is. Theologian, pastor, author, Carl Truman uh, we've been blessed to have him here on our stage. Recent conference last year. Actually, it wasn't on our stage. It was on another stage here in town, but part of our conferences. He spoke this well in a book he wrote. Those lacking a theological background would have come away with the impressions that grace was simply a divine sentiment. A, a decision or tendency in God to overlook sin as an indulgent parent might when dealing with a naughty child. Grace seemed to be nothing more 
than God turning a blind eye to human rebellion. It was as if grace were a free pass to do whatever one chooses. End quote. I fear this notion and outlook has become too much of the modern day Christian's understanding. So, like the great need for the reformers of old to go toe-to-toe with the Roman Catholic Church's stance on grace, we today are still saying loudly, the Word of God alone must shape our thinking on this most critical work of God. For to not do this work to reform our understanding is to not truly understand why grace is so amazing. One of the most recorded songs of all time by a large number of artists is the song Amazing Grace, written in 1779 by John Newton. Like many things, we hear again and again they can lose their potency. I would encourage you for a moment to climb into a slow reading of just the opening words of this song. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Grace, when understood biblically, when understood rightly, is truly amazing. And too often we don't marvel at just how amazing it is. I think this is often because we don't have a full view of of our sin and complete inability on our own or lacking depth or, or appreciation for God's righteousness, His holiness, His wrath, His unobligated, free, sovereign will. Consider with me the opening words of Ephesians 2 as Paul sets the stage. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If we're going to have a full and right understanding of grace, we must start with sin. Because he who thinks wrongly of sin, or lightly of sin, thinks wrongly of grace. Paul says, we who are saved were dead in the trespasses and sins like the rest of mankind. This is a constant and clear diagnosis of a spiritual state because of sin. Spiritually dead. All humans conceived of man and women after Adam are spiritually dead. Parents, when you are wrestling with an unruly child, do not pull your hair out going, why isn't our 18th trick not doing it? No, They're dead in sin. They need grace. They need salvation. 
I mean, we need a, a better view of lostness and sin, inability and sin. Every part of our being in sin is ruled by it, affected by our sin apart from Christ. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, the center of our desires, our decision-making processes, our goals and motives, even our physical bodies. Paul says, For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Romans 7.18, Titus 1.15, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jeremiah 17.9, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? The problem is, in our sin, we have a very weak view of our sin and depravity, and therefore a weak appreciation for God's saving grace. We need to stop and realize how this affects our testimony, how it affects our worship. And Jesus, knowing this, because of sinful condition, because of man's struggle with this amazing work of God, gives this story, this parable in Luke chapter 18. You know it well, but consider it from maybe a fresh perspective this morning. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One man considered by the, by the society to be upright and, and studied and a good contributor. The other man to be a cheat, a swindler, someone that no one likes to see coming. No one wants the tax guy coming. Right? So it's these two perspectives of these two men. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, I'm not that bad of a guy compared to others. Surely not as bad as others like this guy. And so his plea to God is, see what I bring to the table. May it, may it please you that you would reward me. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector's plea to God is, I bring nothing to the table. Nothing good, nothing worthy. I'm so completely desperate for your grace and for your mercy. The tax collector saw the depth of his sin and it broke him. He was desperate for and dependent entirely on the saving grace of God. Think with me about both of these men's testimonies to the world around them. One falls off the fence to, to say, hey, notice how good I'm doing especially in light of you filthy sinners. And, and 
and consider these things. And, and there's this, this critical kind of testimony, this critical kind of spirit. Consider his worship before God. Kind of arms full of the good he's been doing lately. And how that often causes us to kind of have our eyes a little more on ourselves than on God alone, who's worthy. Think about the testimony of the tax collector, one perceived as rotten and a cheat and lower in society's rank. This testimony is humble. It's desperate for God. See how that affects his worship. One potentially leaves the temple that day going, yeah, it's worked out the way I thought it would. The other, recipient of God's grace, leaves the temple that day overwhelmed at God. (laughs) We must think rightly about grace, and to do that we must think rightly about our sin. We must fully and rightly see that God's grace is undeserved. Now there are two layers to undeserved that's good to climb into. A simple reading of undeserved might make you consider that you did nothing to deserve it. Okay? Undeserved, like you showed up to the job site and you just sat there your entire shift. You didn't lift a finger to work at all. Any pay your boss might consider giving you, in that case, would be undeserved. Right? But what we must see is that it's worse than that. Because we didn't do nothing. We showed up on the job site and worked our entire shift tearing apart and degrading the work of the boss. The work the boss wanted done, we ripped it to shreds. Our time was not just idle. It was against the owner of the company. When we see that this is the way we performed in our sin, as an enemy, as an anti-agent, then surely we don't deserve any reward or payment that's positive. Instead, we deserve to, we deserve to be fined. We deserve to be fired and thrown out, right? We're actively hostile against him. This is Paul's emphasis in Ephesians 2. Look with me again. Our, our death in sin meant we were active, following the course of the world. That means we were actively not obeying God. In his commands. We were active, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. That means we, are, we were actively not following the holy God. 
We lived in anti-God unrighteousness like Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were not righteous unto obedience. We were disobedient. We lived in the passions of the flesh. That meant we lived for ourselves, for our own glory. Not for God and for His glory. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Why? Because we are Lord of our own lives. Because I'm going to decide. I'm going to pursue what I want. I'm going to rationalize. And in this we become idolaters. Instead of worshiping and following God and His desires. We were His enemies in every way. And this brings up another fundamental principle that has that is needed to rightly understand that God saves by grace alone. Because we are fallen in Adam, we deserve, we earn God's wrath. Exodus 34.7 says, God will by no means clear the guilty. The principle of the Old Testament verse applied to final judgment is that all who stand outside of Christ will rightly be condemned and receive just wrath. His perfect justice means He must declare us guilty if we are guilty. Or He's not perfectly just. And the sentence is death. Eternal death. If a human judge declared someone innocent who was clearly guilty... He would not be considered a good judge. He would be fired because he would prove to be instead a terrible judge. It is because God is a God of love that he must send guilty people to hell for the same reason that letting a guilty person go free is not an act of love. It's an act of great injustice. So the presupposition that God is good is correct. But the conclusion that therefore because he's good means that he won't or can't punish anyone is completely misguided, unbiblical, and dangerous. The Bible proclaims the sentence for sinners in Romans 6.23. Again, in the simplest of words. For the wages of sin is death. They rightly deserve death because of sin. It's what you've earned. It's the wage you've earned. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 essentially says if we keep on sinning, there is only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is imperative that we, that we note none of our excuses in that time of judgment will have any weight before God. We won't show up as some amazing lawyer to present some case that gets us off. 
You might get away with giving excuses to other people, to your bosses, to your parents, to your friends. But you cannot excuse yourself before the Holy God. The Apostle Paul wrote that in the day of judgment, Romans 3.19, every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. When the judge takes the bench, there will not be a single protest. For he knows. And our current day, man, is so in love with human rights, and it's just elevated to this just wicked level. Most people wrongly assume that God owes us something good. Salvation, again, at least a chance to be saved. But what we must see according to Scripture is God owes, he owes us something. One thing, if still guilty in sin, his righteous eternal wrath. Please, please understand, God is not obligated to be gracious to us. If he was, then grace is no longer grace. If God were obligated to be gracious, grace would no longer be grace, and salvation would be based on some amount of human merit rather than being based on grace alone, on God alone. This is the deep-seated conviction that propelled the Reformers over 500 years ago that to add anything we do to grace is to deny grace altogether. See with me. See with me the reformers putting their lives on the line. They're dying for this truth. Say, what are you talking about? What you're talking about is no longer grace. You've perverted it. You've turned it into something else. Let's return our understanding to just how amazing God's grace is by having a right and biblical view of our being dead in sin, unable to do anything to help ourselves in any way, and a right biblical view of God's wrath due sin. We have nothing worthy of reward or pardon before Him. Only then do we rightly understand grace. Only then is it truly amazing and changes us when we are the recipients of it. Only then do we have nothing to do but worship Him for His glorious grace and testify it to others who do not yet know it. This is Paul's point. Hear him clearly in Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Hmm. The scriptures are clear that men and women are sinful by nature and cannot do anything to save themselves or even prepare themselves to be saved. The scriptures are equally clear that it is God who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. This means that it is God who acts first upon the sinner while the sinner is dead in sin. And therein lies good news, that while sinners don't seek God, God seeks many sinners with salvation. Amen? By grace you have been saved. Let's build on the undeserved wage 
from our boss illustration. And while the following illustration is grossly insufficient to reveal the depth and the beauty, just how amazing God's saving grace is, it can help us to embrace an underlying principle of God's amazing saving grace. When you get your paycheck at the end of the month, your response is not, wow, this is great. Thank you so much. You're such a great boss. Show me, show me how often you write that email or dance into his office just for doing the basics of what you do. Why not? Because you worked for that paycheck. You earned it. It wasn't a gift. It wasn't extra. It was payment for services rendered that month. But what about when your boss surprises you with an extra check in your envelope, an unexpected huge bonus? What's your response now? Pure excitement. Now this is good. Woo! Joy, elation. Especially when he gives you that bonus after your work in that period of time was terrible. I mean, you utterly underperformed. So you are, st- you are stoked. You are overjoyed. This, this is great. What a generous boss I have. Right? Now what if you find out that he's giving you that gift, not based on your performance, but based on the exceptional performance of another in the company? That other employee took a pay cut on your behalf, and you were given the bonus due him. To be clear, he's not slighted in this. This wasn't a manipulation of the board. It was that employee's willing exchange. And to turn it down is not an option. It's done. He has sealed it in your name and on your behalf it is irrevocable. Now what is your response? Humbled. Grateful. I deserve this. Further insight reveals that the boss and that employee set out from the beginning to provide this for you because they knew you were utterly incapable of ever performing on the job to the level that would earn you such a reward. Don't forget, you weren't just inept at performing. You weren't just lazy, a bystander. You were guilty of tearing apart the boss's business, actively working against the boss. Do you see the depth of the wonder that should come from God's grace when we see it rightly? And it gets better because this this bonus is not just a one-time bonus. It's a forever increase in your pay. You, You are secure. You are provided for in the most ultimate way because of the grace of the owner and the work of another. Church, we must see that God granted you His grace because He wanted to And that's all. Nothing in you. It's all in Him. 
As Charles Spurgeon once said it well, there is no reason to be given for grace but grace. I pray that this time together today in this, even if you've sat with these things before, it stirs in you a genuine and deep and authentic gratitude that causes you to truly well up with praise for your great and gracious God. That His saving work in grace alone is all the more beautiful and central to your faith and central, church, to your testimony. The gospel that sets us free and as Christians that we are commissioned to preach to the world is news about God's amazing grace. The Word of Truth Catechism says this about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the grace and the power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved, and they are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. Many of you have Word of Truth Catechism. Study that definition. Memorize it. Understand its layers so that the gospel testimony coming from us is biblical and not preferred, easy, flippant, what we want it to be. For those here today whom God is giving ears to hear this good news, can I just remind you, like, if today's the day, then it has nothing to do with your morning time routine. Has nothing to do with the songs we chose. Has nothing to do with like the temperature of the, of this time of year. Has, no, it's God's work on your life in His sovereign time, in His perfect time, to unstop your ears and give you eyes to see, to wreck you. Oh, this is our prayer that this would be God's will for you, if not today, then soon, that you would repent of your sin and believe in Christ alone for salvation. For those of you whom God has chosen to give His saving grace, we have much to praise Him for. Amen? For His glorious and amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Can I press? When you're looking left and right, when you're out there today, and you see that person, you go, what a wretch. What a horrific, wicked wretch that person is. Please, please, don't be like the Pharisee. Be like the tax collector. And remember that wretch is you before the Holy God. And let it move you to pray for your 
spiritual enemy to testify to them to point them to the gospel not to religious rules and law that they can't be saved by to the gospel (laughs) that they see every day parents look at me that your children see every day that humility of the gospel of that wage you did not earn of the work of Christ on your behalf and it drips off of you that yes before you get angry and self-righteous you you go to the other room you go walk down the street and you pray and you seek God God give me a gospel perspective of this situation let not my self-righteousness let not my flesh rear up here Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it well because God is gracious therefore sinful men are forgiven converted purified and saved it is not because of anything in them or that they could that could ever be in them that they are saved but because of the boundless love and goodness and pity and compassion and mercy and grace of God since the scriptures teach that we are saved not because of anything that is in us and that the merit necessary for our salvation comes to us from the person and work of Jesus Christ we look not within at what we have done but to our Savior to see what He has done. For in Jesus Christ alone we see what it means to be saved by grace. We look to a Savior who calls the dead from the tomb when they still reek of their sins. A Savior who promises never to leave or forsake us even when we go astray. Are you going astray lately? Brother, sister, return to the Gospel. Repent. Are you surrounded by someone who's gone astray lately? Forgive them. Draw them near. And let the gospel work through you. They need Jesus. We look to the good shepherd church who will lose none of his sheep. And who declares, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will lose none of them, but raise them all up on the last day. We look to a Savior who died for all of our sins, past, present, future, who kept God's law perfectly every minute of His life so that His perfect righteousness could be given to us as He takes on our unrighteousness on Him. We look to a Savior who was crucified, who conquered death, and the grave, who rose again, who has ascended to heaven, who now is ruling and reigning and interceding while glorifying God. He is our advocate, our defender, our champion. Salvation by grace alone is most clearly seen in the fact that Jesus Christ freely and willingly came to do for us the very thing we could not do for ourselves He came to seek and save that which is lost. 
that which is dead in sin. This beloved solo gratia, salvation by grace alone, is the sinless Son of God dying upon a Roman cross for the sins of his people, rising from the dead for our justification, making us alive. And through his word, working still today for his glory, for his purposes. We're saved by grace alone, church. It is a beautiful anchor of our Christian faith that we must hold rightly to and celebrate unendingly to the praise of His glorious grace. By grace, you have been saved. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this time together in Your Word, this most important time, that we would not make light of this work You do each week to equip the saints to teach and motivate, convict, mobilize, sanctify us. <laughs> Pray for the young ones in the room who are every day trying to climb into the bigness of these truths that you would bring clarity. I pray for my own unbelieving children. It would be your will to give them eyes to see and ears to hear, to die to self and live to Christ. That one day tears would fall from their face as they realize the power of God to save undeserving sinners like them. Pray for those you put around us, God, that you give us an opportunity to testify, and that's the high purpose of our days, that we would make much of you. Lord, that you would be praised, worshipped, now in song, following the singing with thoughts and words and hugs and serving and be praised, Lord. Be glorified. We love you. Hear us celebrate. Hear us sing. In Jesus' name we pray.